When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. This is Jonathan Fields with this week's Good Life Project Roundtable. So that's a format where I have guests in residence. And we go around the table and we each throw out one topic and jam until we're, well, pretty much done jamming. My guests in residence today and for actually for three weeks now are two dear friends of mine. We have Amelia Zivotovskaya, who is a scientist. She has a master's in applied positive psychology runs the largest certification in applied positive psychology program in the world. And it's just a stunningly brilliant mix of deep academic and scholarship and also a pretty soft metaphysical side. And she blends it in a way which just makes you think. Also joining as a guest in residence for today and for three weeks now is Bob Gower. Bob is a deep systems thinker with a strong background in philosophy and um, agile development for those in the uh, sort of technology world. He's worked with teams at the highest level in some of the largest organizations and also startup entrepreneurs. He also has a background in cults and in all sorts of worlds where um, people influence others to make decisions. And that comes out in a lot of really interesting ways in the conversations over the next couple of weeks. So really excited to share these conversations with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. And hanging out with you on a roundtable day with our guests in residence, Emilia Zivotovskaya and Bob Gower. Gower, Gower, Gower. (laughs) So... This is our third uh, third round with these two fabulous guests in residence, and we're going to start things off this week with Amelia. What are you thinking about? I've been thinking about how do we balance 
divine masculine and divine feminine energy within us. I believe that each person has both, you know, feminine and, and masculine qualities. And I find that it's so easy for me to get caught up in my divine masculine, like get to get things done, very focused, very action-oriented doing, whereas the divine feminine energy is like receptive and relaxed and go with the flow and and creative. And I've just been thinking about how do we balance these two energies within us? And for me, even like, how do I remember to soften when I want to be in control and be masculine? And how do we stay that, stay that balance? And how do you guys find that balance of your... Why do you want to do that? I mean, yeah, that, to... I was curious about that too. Well, I had two curiosities. One, what do you mean? Like why define versus just masculine yeah. or feminine? And then why do you want to balance Wait, say that? the first one again? Why not just masculine versus feminine? Why is it divine masculine, divine oh, feminine? Um, I think of it, I think that's the divine element of it is just like the more energetic quality of it. I think it's just more woo-woo language-ish than anything else. It's like, but I think of it, the reason I use the word divine is... I feel that it's it's just uh, kind of zooms out the lens a little bit and kind of like a more energetic quality. But I really just mean like masculine and feminine energy. And I guess it's just me. Like I'm thinking about in my own personal relationship with my partner, I sometimes notice I want to be in the more feminine role. I want him to be in a more masculine role. But why is it that when we walk into a restaurant, like I walk ahead and I kind of like take his hand. I'm like, all right, here's where we're going, you know? And then I say, oh, but I want you, I want to be more, you know, swooped away by you. But yet I just like, you know, spearheaded through the restaurant. It's like, sit down right here. Um, so I just, I, and so I feel like I constantly am working on, am I, am I in balance? Am I showing up in the world the way that I want to, or am I out of balance? And I feel like it's so seductive to get caught up into that, like masculine, productive, doing, 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 and just harder time being and receiving kind of energy. And all right, maybe I'm the, the way you two are looking at me, audience, if you could see the way that they're looking at me right now, clearly I'm the only one who experiences this. We're like, you are the alpha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just you, Amelia. We're not, we're not looking at you. We're just a little scared. That's all. Do you feel like that someone needs to be in that role? Like in that situation, that, that's let's walking, let's, say walking into the restaurant that one person needs to be in the masculine role and one person needs to be in the feminine role. And because your partner is not going to take that role, then you take that role. Well, have you ever walked through a New York city restaurant? You can't walk side by side. Somebody has to take the lead. Have you ever, have you ever, you say you could be in your masculine role before it, right? In the car on the way there mm -hmm. or whatever, and or in the subway on the way there. And you could say, when we get to the restaurant, I want you to take the lead but and that's tell us me where to being sit down. in the masculine role because... in that moment but in the moment when you're in the restaurant it's you being in the feminine role you have generated in a in a very feminine way you have been generative and you have generated the, the state that you want to be in but I... but does then giving him <laughs> that won't cut but it then it's like you're you're giving him permission exactly because you're saying I'm like, taking control right of to the be situation. masculine which kind of like emasculates yeah no i think if anything i would just have to just sit there and wait until until he took the lead and walked in it and i actually i mean my partner is incredibly masculine in that way i think i'm just too domineering because i i'm just in this you know you think i was an aries no offense to the aries out there in the world it's like you know this bull and just spearhead away i don't think i think if i just stood there eventually someone would would take the lead i just I don't remember to. Have you Sorry. ever played 
the other role? Have you ever not been the masculine? Divine masculine, sorry. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Because otherwise I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Um, I have at times and I know I want to be. I want to be. But again, it's not just ugh, not just the romantic side of life. I mean, just like in everything, how to keep that balance. All right, fine. I'll keep talking about my romantic life. I have at times, but not nearly as much as I would like to be, though. I think the majority of my relationships, even when I start off with a very strong masculine energy, I think I just, I think it's my inner control freak. Like I, that, that masculine kind of takes over. I don't know if it's a vulnerability or softening into that other way. I know I would like to be balanced, but. It may also be. I'm going to go back. Ladies and gentlemen, this has just turned into a therapy session for Amelia. I'm going to go back to my my pre... And and maybe we can back it up even before the subway. It's not the subway on the way in, but it's maybe just being able to set up that context in your relationship. Because what I know about men, being being one myself and and having talked to a lot of us, is we men, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, we like to please the women around us. Like that's one of the things that we really tend... We want to... We don't necessarily... Some men don't necessarily like pleasing women, but they want the woman to be pleased nonetheless. And then they turn into jerks in order to like berate the woman into being pleased. Anyways, it's a, it's a really bad strategy for that. But often I find like it feels like in, in couples, like we don't talk about the context that we want to set, like what make you know, what what you would enjoy or what and what you're and letting your partner know that. So when they get to that moment, because they may just he may just feel like, well, she seems to like this. So I'm just going to let her do that. And so even though he's fully capable of it doing that, it might not occur to him because his focus is on you having the experience you want to have. Mm-hmm. And with him not being aware of you having, of the experience that you do want to have, yeah. this turned into a therapy session. It has. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a common, this is a common conversation. This is a conversation I have a lot, but yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and I recognize within me the vulnerability that it takes to ask for my needs yeah. and the, what if I do ask for my needs and then it, they don't get met. Like I definitely see that coming up and, and taking it out of the therapy session realm, I just, I think my even bringing it to the table is I feel like I am constantly working and trying to find that balance. And sometimes I'm aware of when I'm stepping out of balance in my, in my life where I'm, I'm doing too much and not receiving or being enough. And other times like my relationship, it will take me months of the same exact behavior and and I'm perpetuating, like you said, if he's watching me enjoy playing this role or, or or taking charge or taking the lead, and it will take me, and yet I'm feeling slightly snippy or dissatisfied, it'll take me a long time before it, it hits me that, how am I perpetuating this? I mean, it all feels, there's a, I always think of life that as we have assets, we have desires, and all of our strategies are about taking the assets we have into creating the things that we want to create with them. It's funny, actually, Elon Musk talks about this in great detail. There's a, there's a, a wonderful, this is like how he's created his business. He's like, I have my assets, I have my things I want to create. And my understanding of my assets is always evolving. And so I have to kind of constantly be evolving that. My understanding of that thing that I want to create is also always evolving. And I have to kind of keep thinking about that. And then my strategies to connect the two is also very much a test and learn and always evolving. And I, and he, and he really like hacks his brain in order to think in a new way. So he can think strategically about all three of those, those sort of buckets. And so even in our personal life, you know, I think like, I want to have this experience. Well, I, you know, I have this boyfriend who's willing. (laughs) I have this asset. (laughs) I have this asset. I mean, it's, 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 I don't know. know, He is quite the asset. He is quite the asset. 
but then but then I can create you know I can use the I can use this in order to create and but it's about I think maybe it is about vulnerability it's like getting getting explicit because getting explicit about what we want man that's some scary stuff mm-hmm. at least it is for me most of the time like yeah and also I want I guess I keep going back to the if the vast majority of your life you've always been like played the role of divine masculine how do you actually know that you don't want to be primarily in that role like, and like that your idea of balance, meaning like there is equal or you're more towards a divine mm-hmm. feminine is actually right for you. Mm-hmm. Is it just a gut? It's a great question. I think I'd have to give it some more thought as to whether or not it's like you should be more balanced um, as opposed to you know, what is what is my baseline. I think when I really go deep down inside, the discomfort with the like, really, really, really receptive side of it makes me want to challenge myself to step into that more. Um, so I think that might it's be where the vulnerability, the vulnerability yeah. of like really receiving because mm-hmm. um, you give up control yeah. in that. And I think we can zoom the lens out like around that. It's not just you. I think all of us yeah. um, have that same, you know, like, well, <laughs> A, if I actually give up that role, will somebody rise up and sort of like, you know, like play the compliment adequately to my needs, mm-hmm. to the way I, to way, to the way that I feel that role should be played with, which is also a big expectation thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then am I willing to actually, you know, like play the role of like the, more of the receiver? Yeah, um, which is funny because for you, as we've talked about before, you know, you are the consummate helper. You are like the consummate take control. Not just in your like your but like in every part of your life, mm-hmm. you run it. Yeah. You know your business, your relationships, your family, your friendships, and I think and again zooming the lens out, you know I think when we look around, it's like if we kind of say like okay, what are the patterns that exist in every part of our life? And if we you know if we persistently say, I want something different, but the patterns we manifest in our lives for years and sometimes decades are the exact opposite. Then the question is like well. I say I want something opposite, you know, do I really, or is this just the role that I'm actually comfortable in? Mm-hmm. Um, or am I looking for the, you know, like, um, that the, the night to come and just shake me into that place of like, you know, finally being okay with what may be a fantasy. I don't know the answer, but <laughs> yeah. I wonder if also, like, I wonder if things change too for you. Like, I mean, your business has been, since the time, I, I've known you for a couple of years now, and it feels like your business, you know, like you, what your business requires of you is expanded and expanded and expanded to, you know, where you have to be in this masculine role or this, let's call it this on role all of the time. And maybe your need for having somebody take care of you role from time to time also expands. Can I reference one of a project that I'm working on that's still in stealth mode? Nope, sorry, can't. No, I can't talk about it. All right, it. go All ahead. right, I'll, little plug for it. We actually have a site up for it now already, or a landing page. If people want to know about it, it's dominatingtheboardroom.com. And we're interviewing dominatrices. That's the plural of dominatrix, uh-huh. by the way, dominatrices. Um, and we're asking them specifically about how they take control. But one of the things that's emerged from this is these are women who like work with like really, really powerful men mostly. And I keep asking, like, is it true the, the more powerful the man, the more submissive they are? And, they, and that seems to be kind of a universal truth like these men are like controlling corporations or you know or they're big sports players and these are like you know people who are 
I guess at the top of their career or whatever, the top of their their industry. And in their personal life, they seem to require being more submissive. But then they go to somebody where they're paying that person for it and they've contained it. They've created this particular experience for themselves in this very kind of contained way. I think there's other ways to do that for yourself, right? But what's interesting about that to me is that by not going to the person that they have a true intimate relationship with in their life and asking for that to be their relationship, but actually by paying for the service and the container within like, you know, like within a container where the rules are defined, not by the nominators, but by them, they've in a way like still not relinquished control. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I, we talk about that as well, like yeah. the true power, power dynamic. And I guess, you know, one of our theses or one of the things we're trying to understand is within that dynamic where one person is really in control and the other person in many ways is not like if you're a sex worker, your, your level of social status is much lower than if you're a, say a CEO. Right. And yet in that moment, that person has to take control of the other person and, ha- and has to mean it in some way. And, ha- and so we're kind of looking at this idea of, of leadership as positional or something. Hmm. It reminds me of this silly, silly memory I had when I it was pretty early on into my business. I think I've been in business for a decade now. And uh, I remember I'd finished, it was a couple of years after grad school and someone suggested I try print modeling, like just advertisement kind of stuff. And the at the time, the real motivation was, hey, if I land one print job, I could pay back my loans from Penn, and that would be really great. And I realized how much I loved getting my picture taken because someone just told me what to do. Mm. And so I went from being a business owner, constantly making hundreds of little decisions from that space of uncertainty, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right place to go? Will this continue? And just to have someone say, do this, go here, move that. Like, it was like, I really like this. <laughs> um, and I guess it's the balance, the need to have contrast. I'm seeing a dominatrix in your future, by the way. Just, just say. I know if you like Wait, no, 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 Talk I to Bob afterwards. To <laughs> He's got a long list. I got some numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, have, I have PhD loans to pay back now, so <laughs> you never know. Dominatrix for like a first yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Bob, what's on your mind today? You know, so actually in, in the last one, we, I brought up the kink keeps coming up in this, but uh, you invited me. So you knew that probably this topic would come <laughs> up. But in that article about the, the, the composer, one of the things he also references is he talks about Tchaikovsky and Tchaikovsky, I, which I didn't know, struggled with homosexuality or his, you know, like his feeling closeted. And I think this guy, one of his concerns, we actually talked about this earlier. I can't remember if the mic was on or not, but like if my, if I, if I take away my devils, will my angels leave too? Right. It's a great, it's a Tom Waits line, which I think comes from somebody else anyway. But, but there's this idea, like, do we have to suffer in order to create great art? Cause this, this composer is actually, he's kind of worried in some way, or he sounds kind of worried in this article that like my life, my home life's pretty happy now and I'm kind of out and self-expressed and I'm feeling pretty good is my work still going to have the pathos to it that, that it's, that I'm famous for? Am I, you know, am I going to be, and, and I, and I wonder sometimes as my own life gets happier, am I just, am I, am I producing crap now? Or I I guess wonder what your guys' relationship is between suffering and your creativity. Well, apparently I can't help much because I'm more of a helper than I'm a maker. Cause I think (laughs) the helper answer is entirely different than the maker answer. Well, what's the helper answer? (laughs) They'd be like, you're doing great. I'd be like, it's crap. Your work is crap. (laughs) I'm like, but you're serving so many. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of it as like, 
as as just such a broad and a bill that that when I'm in the more I feel, I personally feel so much more resourceful and I feel joyful and I feel like I'm in alignment and but again the things that I create are more outward focused and so I feel more like we you know we know in, in psychology and research the positive emotions broaden our thought action repertoires what we think about what we're what we're capable of and negative emotions will actually narrow our focus and, and our our tendencies and so when I'm I feel like the more I flourish the I, I don't expect that it will always stay the same there is a still a pulsation where you move forward and you move back and you move forward and you move back. So I think, but I think the nature of the time spent moving back is different. So I don't, I don't go to a deep, dark place, but I, maybe I might go to uncertainty or judgment or just kind of taking a critical eye, but then I keep moving forward. For me, the, the dark has never been a motivator. The dark for me has just always made me feel really stuck. Um, I've never been able to to leverage that energy. Whereas when it comes to positive emotions and it comes to excitement or gratitude or curiosity or joy or love or support, then I feel like, yeah, I could leverage that. I can make something from that. It's just, I don't know if that's just me. Mm. But. I, I agree with that. And I, I would build, um, and I have, I'm, I'm a little bit weird also in terms of- um, A little? My, oh, yeah, okay, I'm a lot of bit weird. Being like a helper and maker and sometimes swinging violently between the two. But my experience has been that the dark can provide extraordinary grist for creation at an exceptional level, but it doesn't fuel the action that lets it turn from suffering into manifest outcomes. So it, it gives you the story mm. to tell but it doesn't give you the energy to tell the story. In fact, like Amelia said very often, it may do the exact opposite. So it gives you the story, it gives you the experience, but it almost traps it inside of you. And the thing that lets it out, the thing that turns it into great art, great inventions, great you know, beauty, awe, delight, companies, businesses, is some more positive energy that says like this thing must get out. And it's something... Something needs to move you from that place where you're 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 stuck in a dark alley mm -hmm. to like taking that and like releasing that out into the world. And m my sense is that, you know, so while you know, I, we've all heard, you know, like great art has to come from great suffering, um, but I think great suffering can be one source of great art. But a, it's not the only source. And B, my experience has been that it never becomes great art until great suffering meets resolution, which, and some other positive energy that moves somebody to bring it to the surface and transmute it into the thing that we, we experience then as art. But at the same time, like I, you know, positive stuff, you know, can be, here's where I zoom the lens out to. It's not about suffering. It's about, engaging and feeling. However you do that, that may be through suffering. Mm -hmm. That may be through moments of awe. That may be through profound pain. It may be through sadness. It may be through like the happiest thing ever. That that provides the raw experience. That then your job is to somehow figure out how to move that from the raw experience to something that then becomes motivation to create something in the world. But so suffering can be one yeah. form, but 
it's not the only and and if you stay in that place like if you just stay in a place of suffering your whole life um to me that's yeah. not the way to and even if it does create like a moment of great art what a freaking awful way to live <laughs> i i think a lot about ben zander's work um the the art of possibility he has a line in there how fascinating yeah you know, good thing happens, bad thing happens, quote unquote, you just say how fascinating. And one of the things I've been finding in my own life is that I, I've worked really hard to amass coping skills. And I think I have a fairly high baseline level of positivity that I might be part genetic um, and or resiliency at the very least. But I've just been watching my life for the past couple of months from a zoomed out perspective where things that happen that many people would be like, wow, that's a bad thing or that's a traumatic thing. Like my father was hospitalized and I needed to make decisions about whether or not I was putting him into hospice. And of course there's more surgeries and nights spent at the hospital overnight and da, da, da. And, and people would be like, wow, that was such a difficult thing. And I feel like I've been working so hard to just, just be like, I don't know, like I, I just, it's my life. I just kind of go about it. Like I don't feel that I suffer when negative, quote unquote, negative things happen because I can kind of watch them. Like I kind of find myself zooming out the lens and I'm watching them happen. Things that used to really rub me the wrong way or, or throw me off my center point. And I'm not necessarily happy that they're, hap that they're happening. I feel like my life is at a fairly calm place. And so when those negative thing happens, like whether it even just be projects not going my way, a lot of uncertainty in my life, things that used to really bring fear, keep me up all night, or things that used to really make me doubt myself and, and spin in my wheels, those similar things are happening. I'm just not suffering from them in the same way. And that doesn't mean I won't at some point suffer, I don't think. But I just think that it's like, you're, I, I think that challenges happening in your life is going to be a given. Mm -hmm how it affects you and how you deal with them, that that's up to us. And so I think that's a guarantee that no matter how joyous or happy you become, you will still be up against things that are going to really challenge your resilience. But when you work with it, then I don't think it necessarily has to be suffering. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in my own life, having been through, you know, kind of several tumultuous relationships and kind of a, you know, like, I guess even up through about say 45 or so, like my life was, I'm 50 now. And my, you know, my life was, was fairly tumultuous and there was a lot of confusion and suffering and, you know, like I did okay. I always made money. All right. But I never quite figured out relationships that I was, I suffered a lot, but I was not terribly productive because I couldn't, I think as you say, Jonathan, I couldn't find the will to actually do anything. I knew I had like great things inside of me, right? You know, I was sure, right? That I had great things inside of me. So hopefully everybody is, right? But those things actually weren't coming out because I was always dealing with the next crisis. I was always dealing with, an, with you know, with the next thing. Yeah, it traps you. Yeah. And now that my life is pretty, pretty happy, you know, and pretty good, um, and that I've kind of put this maker time in my, you know, in my schedule, as we were talking about earlier, right? Like that I'm able to, you know, I don't know if the work is great. I don't know if it's not. I don't know if it's not great. In many ways, it doesn't matter. In many ways, it's just the work. It's just like you show up in, in the morning, you know, and you do the best you can. And, and if you do that often enough, then you produce something. And if you produce something often enough, hopefully you iterate and you get better and better over time. And maybe lightning strikes and you and you produce something amazing. Yeah, I agree. I don't. And what's interesting is I've seen people, I've seen people construct suffering. Yeah. Mm -hmm. because they feel like they're not suffering enough to do 
to have those experiences, which will allow them to create like the next level of yeah. good work. And like, it's not, man, life's going to serve up all you need if you actually face it. Like, you don't need to fabricate anything. You, you just need to open your eyes and own it. And like, that's enough. Yeah. You know, nobody gets out without experiencing something. You know, it's like you were saying, Amelia, it's like, you know, your ability to experience and move through it and develop skills that allow you to be like, okay, this is happening. I, I, there's literally nothing I can do to make the circumstance better, but I can learn how to how to move through it differently with more equanimity and maybe more grace. And then you know, like take some actions that in some way you leverage it and transform it into beauty. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that's where the power is. I have a theory on that earlier part of what you said, the Zhivotovskaya theory. I uh, say it in Ukraine. <laughs> the Zhivotovskaya theory. <laughs> um, that what it means to be human is to feel the emotions and, and that's what makes us feel alive. That's why people would rather suffer through mental illness than become vegetative and, and how important that is to the human experience. And when I see this all the time with my clients and students that when life starts, when they are so used to the chaos and they're so used to the fear or the drama and things become neutral for just a point in time, there's a discomfort there. One, because it's unfamiliar, but two, because they need to feel. And the negativity bias of our brain makes the negative emotions a lot easier to access. The positive emotions take effort and take work to sustain. You have to actively, in the beginning, actively look for what you're grateful for. You have to actively experience kindness or love or compassion towards others or hopefulness or contentment or curiosity. Like they, they just take a little bit more work than the negative. It's you can, if you want to find something to be angry about, you can step outside and just find about just anything. You can also step outside and find something to be grateful for, but it's going to take a little bit of searching. So my theory is that because we have a need to feel and negative emotions are easier to access and tap and conjure, we'll keep going back to those negative emotions because they're they're actually more comfortable than neutral. Neutral is very unfamiliar and unnerving and uncertain. That's the Zhivotovsky theory. Interesting. So I, mean, I have a business idea that, a, that a, fr a journalist friend says that he get funded for me. It's I, I want to create a website called the Daily Outrage. And what we do is we'd have a typology test that you would take when you joined up and it would and we'd figure out what your buttons were, whether you were right leaning or left leaning. Didn't doesn't really matter to me. And then we would serve up a custom, you know, maybe two or three stories to you a day that were sure to make you feel really, really, really upset. Because it feels like that's what people use the news for anyway, right? Like that's the, like we're, we're hitting that lever because we want to have that, we want to feel, as you say, like people, yeah. people want to feel. It's like a different like dopamine hit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but and and I, see that gives me the heebie-jeebies just to begin with. Like those are the I oh, think it's an it evil is, idea. I think. Oh, it, it is. I think yeah, about people like scary movies. It. Like right. I, I'm like, you pay to get that like heebie-jeebie feeling. I know. I'm the same <laughs> way. I'm like, I never like scary movies. <laughs> but there, but it was interesting too. What like brought up for me is that um, when soldiers come home who have seen duty, and uh, especially for like a number of tours that very often their you know, your brains habituate to extreme danger and extreme speed and extreme risk and literally rewire themselves and you know like all of the neuro uh transmitters yeah basically like they, they they they're altered so that when you come home and then all that stimulation goes away 
you know, you get adapted to a very high level of dopamine and very high level of just massive stimulation, like electrical and chemical stimulation, and then it goes away and you fall into a profound depression. And, and so part of it, I think, is, you know, and that's an extreme example, but but sadly, these days, it's actually, you don't even need to go to war to experience that. Like, many people are experiencing that in their daily lives. Mm. And I almost wonder if what's going on with, like, politics right now, and especially during an election year in the United States, I know we have a very international listenership, but here, it's, like, you have to run and hide and, like, you know, put your fingers in your ears and sing la-la-la if you don't want to be barraged nonstop with rage. And I almost wonder whether like this barrage of nonstop, just really heightened rage, like what's the long-term effect that it'll have? And then when this all goes, like the day after the election, when it all goes like largely, I mean, there'll still be rage, but like the, you know, the money won't be there for it to be transmitted on such a mass level. You know, are you going to see millions of people just kind of falling into a malaise because we've been reset (laughs) for so long? Or we'll look for something else. Yeah. I feel like people don't realize how much we need to, after those sort of experiences, like heal to and learn how to taste and feel and connect again. So mm-hmm. you take the example of the person coming back from war, that adrenaline rush that they're so used to, or even the dopamine, like rela- the release that they're getting of what they should be motivated to do, those neurons in their brain will atrophy from the huge, it's like someone doing hardcore drug that releases their body, flooding them with dopamine. If you keep doing that, the the brain is going to have a harder time noticing the beauty of a rose or the scent of something and actually experiencing it. And I see so often people will get detoxed of something or they'll they'll get some physical healing, but yet nobody ever teaches them how to see or to taste. And I feel like savoring is so overlooked. So when you mm. are in a culture where we're being bombarded with stimulus so much, it's like you have to cover your ears in order to get like silence. And then when you actually are, then you expect people to listen to one another where I've had to, I've had to quiet and like block so much information out. I have to be retaught how to listen to someone or, and how to taste again and how to smell again and how to see again, as opposed to what happens when we just, we have to desensitize and just become numb. Like I think people are going to have to numb themselves. So I think the answer to this is basically we're all moving to the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you brought up savoring and because I was thinking we haven't mentioned, we've mentioned the concept, but not the words, but hedonic adaption, right? That we adapt to a certain level of stimulus and we tend yeah. to find that level of stimulus in the new environment. And I know for myself, having been in, you know, a few bad relationships or very intense relationships and then in a cult, which was, I think, kind of the ultimate, let's call that the ultimate bad relationship in some ways, which was highly stimulating. And I thought of it as passionate. I thought of it as exciting and maybe like a somewhat like a a combat veteran. Like it was, I was adapted to that level of stress. And when I developed the relationship that I have now, which is a much more caring, loving, quiet, peaceful, happy really great relationship. I kept having to bump up against this thing was like, oh, this doesn't feel like a relationship to me. This doesn't feel like love to me because it's not drama filled. It's not exciting. It's not like, you know, make up and break up and, you know, all of that. And so I actually had to, I feel like, and it was savoring that allowed me to kind of rewire my brain in order to interpret the thing that I have, which was the thing that was really serving me as the thing that I wanted. It, mm-hmm. It's, it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thumbs up for savoring. Um, so why don't we bring this full circle? I'll throw out the last uh, thing here. And I guess it kind of like builds on the whole, the politics that's been weaving in and out of this. And I, I, I like to not 
keep the show or have the show be political at all. Um, so this won't be about parties or anything like that, but there's, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens with human animals. You know, we're so much closer to dogs than um, we like to think in terms of our just baseline reactions. And uh, when I was back in the day where I was really studying language and influence to learn how to build companies and market and write copy, you know, the Bible for that was a book called Influence. And it was written by Robert Cialtini. And he identified basically a series of six sort of fundamental influence triggers. And one of them was something he called the consistency principle, where the idea is that, let's to use as an example, if you went up to knock on a stranger and you're like, you're, you're out there, you're campaigning for somebody and you decide you're going to go and knock on somebody's door because you're just going down the block trying to get people to like, you know, vote for somebody. And you're like, hey, you knock on a stranger's door. Hey, can we put a billboard in your front yard that says, I support X candidate in person? Like, no, no way. Okay, well, um, could we at least put this tiny little, you know, like six-inch six lawn sign on like a little piece of wire just out in the front? Okay, right? Now, if you go back to that person a week later and ask them if you could put something slightly larger... They'll say yes. And if you go back to them, and so eventually you could work up to the billboard. And the idea is that once we put a stake in the ground, once we say or do something and we make it public, uh, and sometimes even if we don't make it public, but once we say or do something, we have this innate need to act and speak in a way that's consistent with whatever we've said or however we've acted before that. And that leads to, especially in times of, politics, but also just in everyday life, that leads us to dig our heels in. And it leads us to just say like, well, I said I supported this, or I said I'm in favor of this, or I said no to this before. And even if you're kind of like, between the time that you said that, or you did that, you've seen a whole bunch of new information, which shows that you're clearly wrong. Like this was not the right thing to say or do, right? But you've gone public with your statement or your action. And then somebody comes back and asks you to take a slightly, you know, like bigger uh, action or say something that would continue to support what you initially said. You're probably going to do that, even though you know that it's really not legit. And you get to a point, and I see this happening, and I think it happens to a lot of us, you know, a lot of big decisions that we make in life, and we're seeing it like in a massive way in politics, is that we get to a point where we become staunch supporters for something. But, but we, there's a voice inside of us that knows, that just knows. But we have now like publicly said 10 times at elevating levels that this is what I believe um, and taking action to support it that we, we can't back away anymore. And it's like, we're trapped. But I think there's a voice deep down, you know, that says, we know this isn't it. We know this isn't right, but we're such... Um, we're such creatures of our previous statements and patterns that we, we lose the capability to actually step away from what we know is no longer valid for us. And, um, and I see that being preyed upon more than ever these days. And in a way you can leverage that phenomenon to create astonishing good in the world and in individual people's lives, but you can also use it to do the exact opposite. I know. So that's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> Heavy topic. Just a, just a little tiny topic. <laughs> okay. Deconstruct. <laughs> yeah. So 
I mean, I look at this, we, we, I've talked about this a little bit in the, in the writing I've done about cults and cult psychology, right? That we, we'd get people to double down on, like we, we first start, you know, it's like first it's internal language. It's the, it's the old, the, the elevator experiment, you know, that one, like where someone would enter the elevator and the elevator would be filled with other people and the other people would turn towards the back of the elevator and the person would like look uncomfortable for a little while and then join in with the group. Like inevitably, like nine times out of 10, like overwhelmingly do something really stupid and ridiculous because the group they were in would do that thing. And I think in many ways, like culture and cult is just sort of like the collection of those little things that we, that we build up over time. And those things don't necessarily need to make any sense, right. In order to, in order to be self-reinforcing that we tend to want to want to double down. And what's interesting about that to me is that the people that say they are the most, oh, that could never happen to me are actually the most likely for that to happen to them. They're the most easy to influence people who think they, you know, like people who think they're going to catch the magician's trick, who are sure that they can't be fooled are the ones who the magician fools every time, right? They're the, they're the easiest to be fooled. Yeah, and it's not about, it's funny because I had right. this conversation. I had a piece of it with um, Marie Konnikova who wrote this book. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, what was it called? She was on the podcast recently about the long con about mm-hmm. grifters. Yeah. And like the big, the big awakening is, it has nothing to do with whether you're smart or not. Mm-hmm. The, it, you, the smartest people in the world are still going to fall, quote, prey to this, to, to a set of fundamental human biases. You know, it has nothing to do with how intelligent, like there's no protect, there's no thinking your way out of it. There's no beings like so smart that this can't affect me. Mana that I teach in positive psychology is that self-awareness enables self-compassion, enables self-care. The more aware you can be of human biases, the more likely you might be like might be to catch them, or the more aware of yourself, the more better able you are to catch them. So that feeling that you're saying when someone has a like that little teeny tiny voice inside of them that says, Maybe this isn't it, or hey, this doesn't feel right to me. We can strength I believe we can strengthen that voice. I know I've strengthened it within myself that it's not a whisper. It's usually pretty loud these days, and I've learned the painfully hard way to not ignore that um as and and so i think it takes a lot of cultivating self-awareness which is not just understanding yourself it's understanding how you think it's understanding what pushes your buttons what motivates you what manipulates you what what is your carrot and your stick and also knowing what human beings are wired for and i'd be curious of those people that you see easily manipulated have they read influence are they aware of this the strategy Well, it was interesting because when the book's like 30 30 to 35 years old now, I can't remember when it first came out. And, you know, it's as relevant as it ever was because human nature is human nature. You know, our biases are what they are. And when it came out and a number of books, many books have come out that are derivative of that since then. And, you know, from, and these are from academicians. These are from people who are doing research, you know, on the one hand, people are like, this is fascinating. You know, like this is marketers are like really interesting tools. And then, you know, like uh, activists and social psychologists and other people are like, this is horrible for society. You're arming people. Like you're teaching people how to manipulate and influence people. And and then the response has always been, we're not teaching, like this is what's happening every day, all day, all the time. Hopefully what we're actually teaching is for people to actually be able to now understand these things that are actually sort of being imposed or leveraged to try and move them to do things that might not be in their best interest so they can actually spot them more easily. And at the same time, like you were saying, like maybe just pause long enough to say, huh, 
am I being led by some sort of internal and irrational bias? Or am I actually, is this actually the thing that's meaningful for me to do? It's the defense against the dark arts class. Yeah, right? exactly. And, uh, and, and I guess there, there's maybe one layer deeper. I don't know if I can express this. Ex I don't, this thought is not fully formed, so I apologize. But there's something around, like, what does it really impact and does it really matter? Like in many ways, human, the, the, the story of our species, the story of evolution, the story of the planet is this sort of like, in many ways, nonsensical, complex, contradictory process full of weird dead ends and full of a lot of strangeness. And if this, and I, and I firmly believe that our ability, we talked about this earlier, our ability to gather together in groups is one of our evolutionary advantages. If the reason that we're gathering together in that group is not and and working together and collaborating and working and and cooperating if the foundation of that doesn't make any sense if it's not you know you know like we believe in in the person in the sky you know if it's religion or whatever it may be if it doesn't make like relig like specific logical sense there may or may not be like what do, like what, like like there's different ways to measure that right do, like what does it matter does it does it really if it's producing if I'm happy in the group, if I'm enjoying being a part of this particular group and this particular group isn't hurting other people and it's not contributing to global warming, which is highly unlikely, you know, does, does it matter all that much? Do we have to be logical? I think expecting humans to be logical is the ultimate irrationality. I think it, people have different agendas. Like some people, they're, they want mastery of their lives and they, they want to thrive and they want to flourish. And other people say, um, I just want to make a lot of money and you know like what, what do we want and what's important to us and how is that different i could be biased in that i think that there's an element of of personal self-awareness self-compassion and self-care that goes into mastery like i remember someone tried to use uh the game like that pickup artistry book and <laughs> to pick me up once and i was like oh so you read that black book eh? because he like i think he um he was negging you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. He, i think he made fun of something i was wearing or something like yeah. that it's like oh i've read that book too you know, and <laughs> busted. and <laughs> busted, yeah. and 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 I I I, prefer, I enjoyed reading it. it. Kind of, there's like a self empowerment that can come from it, and I think that otherwise, to your point about you know, doesn't matter. I think we're living a pretty reactive life, and obviously, we always are reacting to things that come our way. But if we can have the ability to choose, I think it, I think it's powerful, and I think it makes us happier in the long run. Yeah. So, in the name of maybe hopefully arming us a little bit, you know, kind of coming full circle to the uh, consistency principle is that, you know, you know, maybe the message, maybe the thing I'm really, that I really want to get out is just understand yourself a little bit more, you know, understand your biases, understand how like there's a set of inner workings that influence your decisions and your actions that you have no idea are running the system or running the board for you. So do a little bit, I mean, I think everybody should read Cialdini's book, not because you want to necessarily leverage it, but so you can actually understand all these forces that are coming at you that play a substantial role in your decision-making. And especially in this time where there are a lot of big decisions that need to be made by a lot of people, really go a little bit deeper and understand what's guiding you to say and do what you may be saying and doing. And is it a true reflection of what you know deep down intuitively to be yeah. right for you. 
I, I think that the self-awareness, self-compassion, self-care model is really powerful even here around what to do when you do realize you're being a hypocrite mm. and you recognize your own hypocrisies. So if I realize I've got billboards and posters all over my lawn of something I don't subscribe to and I just feel shame and you know I can't go out and go against my word or any of these other things, well, yeah, you can. You can say... I realize I made a mistake or, and that, that self-awareness of understanding, Hey, this is, I, I did this thing and it was a mistake or it was an error or this really is in alignment with myself. I think people can be more authentic once they understand that, like you first soften into the self-compassion for yourself, sort of saying it's a brain bias or I'm being a hypocrite or, you know what, this was true for me then it's not true for me now and things change. And then you can do something about it and then you can communicate or you can apologize or it's like, I think we live in a world where it's should be okay to change your mind. Yeah. I mean, going back to the political context, I think people give politicians a really hard time for flip-flopping, right? And I don't necessarily always see it that way. I see it as they've allowed themselves to evolve or the culture has evolved to the point where they can publicly now publicly hold a position that they held privately, or it's simply expedient, you know, politically expedient for them to hold a position that I happen to agree with. And I think all of those things are, are kind of fine with me. If they show a willingness to evolve, it's the ones that get, that are very rigid. Mm-hmm that don't hold a position. And I will say that I don't, I don't believe, you know, when I say that, you know, what, what does it matter? Like, I don't necessarily require us to be logical at all times, but at the same time, I think, you know, what makes a cult a cult to me is not necessarily the, the social control that's used. Cause I think social control is functioning in every corporation in the world. It's functioning in every, every culture in the world. It's, we all want to be a part of the people that are around us. We all want to, you know, kind of participate. But it's when that social control begins to have us generate a reality or a life for ourselves that is somehow not the thing that we wanted for ourselves or it's or it's somehow inconsistent for, you know, with our own happiness, our own or our own thriving. And I think that's when I, when I look back on my experience in the cult, that's ultimately what I saw I generated was over and over and over again. I kept, I kept making choices that really didn't work out very well for me. And yet I was somehow sure that we were changing the world and making the world a better place. And so I was going to sacrifice and double down. And, you know, the organization, of course, thrives because people keep doubling down on it while the individuals within that organization kind of wither in some ways. When you look back on the experience now, did you have that little voice that was telling you? Every day, I think. I think every day I woke up and I was like, is this... Yes, it is. You know, like you, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and also they design the world's designed to, you know, you're sleep deprived, generally speaking, and you're surround and you're not alone very often. And you're sort of surrounded by people who are reinforcing the behaviors. And so, I mean, they're really designed to kind of keep that voice at bay or to keep you sort of unwilling. You know, I mean, many people who have left cults will describe how lucky they were to get in the car accident that landed them in the hospital for a week because all that to all it took was a week away from the group. And then all of a sudden, you know, and that was very much my experience as well. I kind of happy accident led me away for a little while. And I was like, really within a couple of weeks, I was like, wait, what the hell was that? Why did that happen? And it took years to kind of recover from it in many ways, but, but it didn't take long to get away from the, the attachment to it. Hard to read the label when you're stuck inside the jar. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could all geek out on this, I think, for a long time. But in the name of letting everyone get back to their days, um, love jamming with you guys. Thank you so much for being my guests in residence for these three weeks. It's been awesome hanging out. For you listening, if you have not listened to the last two weeks of Roundtables with Amelia and Bob, 
be sure to go back. Really just brilliant, kind, generous human beings and fascinating conversations. Amelia, where can people find you? They can find me at Amelia.com, E-M-I-L-I-Y-A.com. And Bob? At BobGower.com, B-O-B-G-O-W-E-R. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.